Welcome to The Professor and The Coach. These are going to be a set of conversations with Professor of Leadership at Henley Business School, David Pendleton, and myself, Master Coach Guy Bloom. David and I met on an earlier episode of the Leadership Bites podcast. We got on absolutely famously and then started to have conversations that we suddenly thought we should probably be recording and putting out there. So that's exactly what we've done. David and I will be picking up on topics connected to leadership and things that are current in the media that we feel are relevant for a conversation. So on that note, enjoy the episode. David, great to have us back. We were talking about morality and we we were posing a couple of little questions to ourselves. And one was, can you do well by doing good or can an organization do well by being good? And that triggered a response from you that that saying, you know, all's fair in love and war and business. And we were kind of, you know, is, is that true? And there's so much going on in the world right now that this topic of morality and the commercial enterprise is very, very topical. So from that perspective, uh, that's that's what we're going to talk about. So let, let's go. Yeah, terrific. Terrific. Uh, my my, my uh, reaction to that notion of all's fair in love, war and business is uh, it's oh, no, it ain't. <laughs> it, it isn't true. And, and it's, it's, it's not true for lots of reasons, I think. But I think the first observation I'd make is, is the way that the different generations kind of respond to that idea. You know, if I think about my parents' generation, which, you know, who, who, who were born, who were born uh, uh, early on in the 20th century and kind of had formative experiences through, through the Second World War and so on, um, you know, that they they were a very moral generation it feels like to me and they would have never have believed that all was fair in love war and and business uh, and hence you know nuremberg and war crimes and all of that so it isn't true in in war uh, is it is it true in in business i i don't think so and for them they would have been very critical of any business that that didn't consider its responsibilities to a society to its employees and so on um and what's interesting also is if I then think about my kids, you know, they are young adults. Uh, they are uh, at the sort of the beginning of the probably the second quarter of their careers. And they also are a very moral generation. So so what happened to that bit in the middle? It seems to me that this was a kind of a philosophy probably promulgated in the 1980s. Um, you know, when, when Reagan was in the White House, Thatcher was in Downing Street, and there was this belief that somehow, you know, greed was good, um, you know, and th- that the only way for businesses to really make progress was to kind of put everything else aside and just win at all costs. Um, and I think that the generation before that and the generation following it uh, have rejected that. But the one in the middle seems susceptible to that kind of argument. Um and so, so the first thing I'd say is I think that it's a, it's a historical feature of a particular cohort of people that believe that. And there are probably still some of them around. But I think the majority have rejected it. I mean, what, what's your view of it, for example? So I think um, this is really interesting where I think there's something that's always gone on in the world. There are those that have always tried to control. And from the baron, <laughs> the local fiefdom, you know, the, the oil tycoon who land grabbed, uh, you know, the, the oligarch that, you know, there's always that power orientation and that, that human greed element. And even though I only think 
Uh, I think that there's only a relatively small percentage of people that have a domination characteristic <laughs> that fundamentally want to win at all costs. The rest of society, in some way, is within their or their span of control. Maybe I'm dependent on you or interdependent on you in some way. I'm a supplier to you or I'm, um, you know, I'm, I, I work for you or whatever that might be. And all throughout the years, I think good people have been in the control or the influence of others whose agenda is very, very different to potentially the rest of societies through what, what, whatever reasons. So I think with the outcome of social media, where we have a voice to people's discomfort or disassociation with that, that drive and, and that lack of morality or that lack of principle or willingness to enable others. But I don't know if it changes the fact that power sets the tone and the rest of society can verbalize it as much as they like. But the powers that be are immune, maybe. We don't have to pay our tax if we don't want to. We'll just put it somewhere and do a legal complication and good luck. Or we'll pay homage to the carbon footprints, but we'll fly to the meeting in our jet. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think they're touched by it. So, so power, but that, that idea about power is important because you know there is that saying, isn't it, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm. Um, and if you think about it, the biologists would say, I mean, Richard Dawkins and the selfish gene idea right. is that you know fundamentally built into our DNA is the is the idea that our genes must prosper and survive, even if we have to compete with and kind of defeat uh, all competitors. But the, that kind of biological imperative, it seems to me, has to be tempered with some sort of sense of morality, some sense of we're in this together, you know, we share our planet, you know, that we share its resources. If we don't want to live in constant turmoil and war and fighting, what we've got to do is to find better ways of resolving territorial and border disputes and, and access to resources and so on. We've got to find better ways of doing that than just fighting each other about it. And it does seem to me that the essence of this is the distinction between I and we. Mm. Uh, and and that is the, the key, it feels to me, to the, the idea of, of moral action. And businesses, I think, would do well to remember that so, that so that supermarkets need to give a fair deal to their suppliers. Otherwise, the suppliers go out of business um, and, and they'll, they'll go to the person who will give them a little bit more. So you create fickleness by driving prices down to points that are painful for suppliers to be able to 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 match um and so my sense is that we we need a better and more mature and more into more intelligent way of solving these disputes rather than fighting or competing or creating the kind of power that pushes you down at my benefit or me up at your expense i mean that's just a form of slavery ultimately and that's not acceptable anymore so i totally agree with that and i think that's what i see is this um you know, we know what good looks like. We, we have a really strong human sense of, you know, don't kick puppies. 
That's not a conversation that we all need to have. I've, nobody's ever asked me what I think about that, but I wouldn't. I don't think I've ever met anybody that wouldn't go, oh, no, no, of course not, right? There are some things, call it in the DNA or in the cultural kind of um, you know, mindset, doesn't matter what it is, but it doesn't matter where you go in the world within reason. The th- Most things are generically true. And I think it's the, um, if the question is, can you do well by being good? There are a lot of commercial environments that will espouse that. But when push comes to shove for the financials, i.e. when it's going well, right, it's it's probably fine. But as earnouts approach or bonus periods approach or the market shifts, then we see good people trying to protect maybe themselves or their team or people in senior roles. And I had one person say to me, I'll be a good person after I've got my bonus, <laughs> after I've got my earn out, i.e. when yeah. I walk away with a bucket load of money, then I can yeah. start doing good things. And yeah. Well, C.S. Lewis, you know, who, who was the Oxford academic who wrote about uh, morality and religion and all this sort of stuff, he wrote the thing called the, the Screwtape Letters, which was a senior devil writing to a trainee devil about how to corrupt hu- humankind. And, and the, the argument that, that I liked most was t- t- the senior devil said to the trainee devil, um, tell them that sin is wrong and they should really stop it, but not yet. <laughs> There you go. Not yet. And that, that was the way to corrupt humanity, you know. And so, and so, you know, if, I think that what we have to get used to asking is if something is right in six months' time, why isn't it right now? Um, you know, so so if it's if it's right, if it's the right thing to do after the bonus, why isn't it right thing to do on the way up to the bonus? You know, and you've got to you've got to say, do these things change just because there's this little bit of money that, that changes hands? And the other the other thing I would say uh, is that. If you want people to do well by doing good, then then we all have a responsibility to support those good causes and reject those that don't uh, conform to those ideas. And it, what's interesting is that uh, I was sitting recently on the board of, uh, of a professional organization who were reviewing their investment policy. Uh, and they were asked uh, their financial advisors, uh, is it possible that by investing in the so-called ethical investment funds that we'll do well? And what was interesting is that the answer came back unequivocally, yes, that on balance, uh, ethical funds have done really rather well. They've, have they been the, the spectacular performers? No, they haven't, but they've done really quite well. So that there's a kind of empiricism around that too, that if you can do well by investing in those that do good, why, would, why wouldn't you do that? And that's exactly what the, the, the group decided to do. Well, yes. And I think this is where I get at a very grassroots level of working with organizations on a daily basis, as I know, you know, you do as well, is there's the academic perspective and there's that kind of absolute, and I would agree with every single word you've said. And then there is how do Davids and guys who are working in the trenches with organizations take it from just an intellectual argument, which nobody could probably disagree with, and then turn that into something that is tangible at a local level. And, okay. and I think well, let there's, me, there's something about that which is important. No, I think, I think that's right. But I think also 
we need to refine our understanding of ethics because if you have the debate, is this ethical or not? It, you know, if you offer a binary choice, you end up dancing on the head of a pin. You know, you sort of get these sh shades of grey. You get to these border conditions or these marginal questions, and you end up in a, in a kind of a nonsense argument. Whereas an awful lot of ethicists are now switching their approach, not to ethical or not, but rather, given that I'm doing X, how could I do something that was more ethical? more ethical so you see as a movement as a as a gradation as it were the shallow end <laughs> of the cesspit that we, that we might be working in you know so so the idea is how can we nudge people towards the shallow end by being relative not absolute right, so it's point. like no that's no, i was interrupting so there's something like fitness which is like you know it's not about becoming getting a six-pack by tuesday it's the what can we do to create the shift to the habit of fitness yeah. and then we'll see where that takes us that's right and diet is the same um you know and, and and in many ways kind of education is the same you know if i can give a little bit more education to my children maybe maybe i can encourage them to do just a little bit a little bit more so this idea of of movement and, and improvement rather than categorical thinking might be one of the ways that people like you and i can help organizations so that we so that we might uh, in a sense begin to <laughs> informally and, and, and have fun competing over how we can just nudge it the next step, nudge it the next step, and so on. Now, some things are clearly just basically wrong, but an awful lot of, of, of action is in that middle ground where it is a matter of degree and, and gradation. And idea is that the notion of the shallow end is quite an important one, I think. I think that's um, super important. I, I often get people to list, you know, uh, as you might do on any intervention. I, I do it with, from a CEO through to somebody that's on their first appointment into a management role. You know, what's what's a great leader or what's a good leader? And you get words like inspirational and motivational and you go, blimey, that's a big thing to live up to, right? You know, but would it be fair to say that there are times when you might need to motivate somebody? Oh, yes, I can, I can motivate, but I don't know if I can be motivational. So, you know, all the time. So maybe there's that thing about the motivational's big, but motivating yeah so it's not about walking around being fundamentally moral and we're absolutely ethical and we're perfect i mean as as much as that's a beautiful thing but actually what's our relationship with just moving it forward yeah i think that's right it, it, it does seem to be that the problem we're often facing is the kind of belief in perfection which which i i think i've abandoned <laughs> because what I understand is improvement. I understand better, yeah. better than I understand good. Um, and, uh, and I certainly, I, I subscribe to that notion of, of not making best the enemy of good. You know, what we're trying to do is to is to is to move to the to the brighter light, move to the shallow end, move to, you know, move to uh, a place which is better than it is now. And, and I'm absolutely sure that if each of us, when we took on a new job, simply said to ourselves that my purpose in what at one level is simply to make this team better than it is now. Mm. You know, it, to, to leave it in better shape than I found it. It's, it's really not a, bad, not a bad principle to go for. And it makes things a bit more realistic. It makes it much less daunting. Yes. And I think that's, um, it's almost when something's held up as aspirational, it can become too much for people to 
deal with maybe when times are tough and there are tough decisions to make because actually if you're saying no and i've got to be very careful here you know but if we're saying in some respects somebody might say well well, good is good guy and and bad is bad it's it's quite clear but in in making commercial decisions there are areas of gray i mean as you say if it's fundamentally immoral no we know what wrong looks like perhaps (laughs) Yeah. But in these commercial decisions of maybe how much we push a group of people or expectations of people's work life balance or, you know, where does it become easy and comfortable and way too hard and we're killing people? Well, there's a weird bit in the middle where if you've got X amount of thousand employees, one person's, you know, that was that's quite relaxed as another person's. It's too much. But we have to take a position. Let's err on the side of a little bit too much and a little bit too less. and, And we're okay with that. As long as yeah. it seems ultimately fair, there is a yeah. living with grey that isn't opting out. Uh, that's right, uh, but, but you're but you're clearly distinguishing the lighter grey from the darker grey. You're trying to nudge people in that direction, and I think that idea of just kind of moving towards a better place is is a perfectly realistic way to try and live our lives. It, it's not a, a council of perfection. Let, let me give you, uh, in a sense, a, a, a relevant story. Um, my wife, Jenny, uh, Jenny, who works under the name Jenny King, um, she spent a lot of time assessing doctors who were getting into difficulties of various kinds. And some were accused of bullying uh, and being um, you know, far too harsh taskmasters. And we thought, gosh, these people must be kind of wicked, evil, horrible people. The truth is they're not. What they are is hyper-conscientious. What she discovered mm-hmm. is that these people, they really care about getting it right. They really care about the patients. They really care about doing a great job. And as a result, they work every hour God sends themselves, and that's okay. Where they got into difficulties is where they expected everyone else to do the same as well. To take on their standards, to take on their uh, working practices, to, to, to make themselves not just self-sacrificial, but they, they insisted that other people became sacrificial as well. Yeah. And that was what was getting them into difficulty. It wasn't a bad motive. Yes. It was simply the over-application of hyper-conscientiousness that was destroying people's lives. Hyperconscientiousness is a great phrase, and I, and I love that. And I often draw a line that I go motivated, driven, bullish, yes. bully. Yes, yes. And the line between highly driven or hyperconscientiousness and yeah. being bullish to slash bully is very yeah. much my context of where I am, i.e., if I want to join you in that place, then you're actually motivational. <laughs> but actually, if I'm operating on a different platform of, look, I want to work really hard, but I would like to go home at some point. I want a life. I want a family. <laughs> I like a life. I'm just not where you are. Therefore, if you don't offer this to me or adjust in a manner that I can handle, I'm being bullied. And of course, the person has no intent. So sometimes morality is an interesting thing. It's uh, almost that emotional intelligence. I mean, there are fundamental strategic decisions that might be immoral, fine. But in the everyday, maybe it is that peer review, the seeking counsel, the willingness to jihadi window, see the back of your own head. Is it psychologically safe to offer me the experience I'm giving you? Yeah. So I can come down. 
there's a there's a lovely book that you and I, I've mentioned to you before, it, just written by Jonathan Sachs, who, who's died recently, but was the chief rabbi. And he's written this book simply called Morality. Um, and I think it's one of the best books I've read. Okay. Um, and uh, because it is full of humanity and, it's, and it, it comes down. This is where I've got this notion of you know, the essence of morality is the distinction between I and we. If it's all about me, then I don't tend to act morally. If it's about us. Then, I, then there's a ch better chance that I will. And if I begin to realize that I've got to care about something other than just me and mine, I've got to care, I've got to care enough about you and yours to not do bad things to you. Um, that, that, that those are the simple principles to work on. Uh, he also offered the idea that this notion of we um, is not only um, the basis of morality, but it might even be the basis of joy. He, I wish I'd come up with this. He said, joy is happiness shared. Now, how about that for, for a simple, profound truth? Joy is happiness shared. But the idea of, you know, we are our brother's keeper. We are connected to each other. And if we can only understand that, we'll take better decisions. I'll give you another a real, real life example. There's the Andaman Sea. Um, I think it's called the Andaman Sea. Um, it's uh, in um, uh, Eastern Europe. Um, and um, I'm working from memory here, so I've got these details slightly fuzzy. But this is the, the truth of the matter is it's a, it's a, it's a World Bank um, uh, case that's often worked. It's now a desert, by the way. If you take pictures of, uh, in the Andaman Sea, what you'll find is super tankers uh, rusting uh, on a, a desert uh, of, of no water at all. And everyone knew that water was being taken too much out of or prevented from flowing into the Andaman Sea by the countries around it. Uh, and um, everyone knew that if this practice continued, the sea would disappear. Uh, and that would be terrible for the countries surrounding it. And every country agreed that and every country failed to stop doing the things that were benefiting themselves, but, but causing the sea to disappear. And now it's gone and it's gone irretrievably. Um, and so somehow we don't find it easy, even when we know that something is a good thing to do. If it is sacrificial for us, we find it hard to put the, the needs of the collective greater than the needs of the individual. We find that hard. So as a result, the sea has gone. It is now a desert. And, and you know, if we had all the time in the world, right, I, would, <laughs> I could go on about this because I, I'm very interested in proximity to what you care about. And that's very interesting because if I knew that my neighbour was doing something horrible to a pet, I'd probably do something about it. If I heard that somebody in my street was doing that, I might do something about it. You tell me something's going on in another town. What can I do about it? Yes. You know, there's a proximity thing that um, I'm really alert to. If I saw a starving child in the street, I would help them. Oh my gosh, look at this two-year-old by themselves, not feed. I'd, I'd run out and help. I see it in another country. What can I do? There's this... This proximity thing. Yeah, which yeah. Oh, yeah, which I, yeah it's true also in uh, company surveys. If you ask um, how capable are the people in your team, yes, it's high. Or if you ask how satisfied or how motivated the people in your team, it's high. How about the people that they report to? Uh, it's not quite as high. Mm. 
How about the people that they report to? Oh, that's definitely not as good. And what about the people at the top of the organization? Terrible. You know, it's kind of, but if you ask about your organization rather than other organization, it goes back up again. You know, so, so we find this, this, this proximity effect. It's a very real effect. Mm. Uh, and it's the people who are, who are close to me are good people, but the people who are further away are less likely to be good. Hmm. No, I can't. I don't. I, I can't see them. I don't feel them. And which is, which is, I, I guess that whole, and, and maybe that's a reverse thing as well. You know, if I, if I as a senior team make myself, make ourselves, proximity-wise, closer, and that doesn't just mean town halls and regal visits, but if yeah. I sit amongst people in a manner, if I find a way of not people not having to face up to me with a kind of a veneer of all visit but if i'm around enough that actually i feel closer to you then actually i'm going to see you more as a human being (laughs) rather than a than a statistic so i think there's a there's a message there which is way beyond internal comms which might be for senior teams get yourself closer so when the sticky situations come you have a sense of connection and humanity, which means if it is a hard decision, it might become a really hard decision because you do Absolutely. care, but it will challenge yeah. you as to whether or not you're doing it yeah. for what reason. And I think that's yeah, no, I think that's dead right. I think that, 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 that being able to walk a mile in their shoes, you think it's, the, it's the basis of empathy. Incidentally, of course, the media have a big role to play in this. And so when totalitarian regimes cut off access to social media, for example, uh, it's a problem because it means that they can get away with more. Um, you know, they say that the Vietnam War was the first war ever in history that was lost in the living rooms of America. Yeah, they that's just reacted so badly. Was, yeah. Television brought, brought the plink in, into, in, mm. into, the, into the living rooms of the States. And of course, social media do that now, not just sort of week to week, but day to day, moment to moment in real time. You can be there uh, and you hope that what that will do is um, cut off some of the worst extremes of uh, irresponsible or even punitive uh, government behaviour. Mm. Although I'm looking at what's happening in Myanmar at the moment, and I'm not seeing uh, a big effect of that. Uh, you know, they, they, they are um, oppressing their population, it feels to me, uh, with, with impunity at the moment, uh, and, and that it's their own people who are trying to stand up against them, whereas the international community, I think, really needs to think hard about how it's going to intervene in places where there is clear injustice going on. Uh, and, and the way that the United Nations has been set up, it seems to me, is... is um, is less than efficient at, at, at being a kind of conscience or even the police force of the world, but at least the conscience of the world. Um, but I think you're right, proximity really matters. And certainly in the studies, in the Milgram studies, you know, which were about, are you prepared to give a shock to yes. the person if they get the, get the test wrong? If you made the, the, the shocker put their hand on the arm of the person that they were shocking, almost no one shocked. Yeah. Uh, whereas if they're in the other room and all you can do room. is hear them, yeah. you couldn't see them, you know, more people were prepared to do that. And these are not evil people. These are just you and me. You know, these yeah. And I think that's where I, I get very interested about that. If you're a good person, then, and a good team, and you identify as we care, we care. Okay. But actually what almost 
behavioral processes might you need to enforce amongst yourselves to ensure that your morality doesn't just rest in an intellectual space because most people don't define themselves most senior teams don't define themselves as immoral by any standard but actually what can we do that as a process means over a period of time we are very much close in proximity to the people that we're making decisions about as opposed to separating ourselves through by um, a kind of purposeful design that means we are actually quite separate and of course you get you know if we have a sociopath that's in charge well then that might take a rebellion that does take actually something fundamental to happen but that's almost the Myanmar situation of if if it's not good people in good places trying to do good things then hey that's uh maybe yeah. another podcast called how do you bring down a dictatorship in a commercial <laughs> context maybe that'll yeah. be a podcast yeah yeah but you know the further the further we allow people to get away from the consequences of the actions that they perform yes you know hence, you know remote drones you know firing rockets you know from some shed in texas yeah. to something that's going on in syria or whatever yeah, you know, th- that that is tricky, I think, because unless you've got the the rules of engagement absolutely pleased and clear in your mind, then it's it's so easy to sort of just drift into uh, you know this isn't harming me and me and mine or anyone I know, you know. So it's it's very easy to to perpetrate uh, outrageous acts because you just don't see the consequences of it. Um, so I, I do think that that your principle of, of proximity is is not a bad one to. Uh, yeah. To, to reinforce really but we've got to care as well most people do you know most of us are yeah. not sociopaths most of the well 99.9 percent of the people i've worked with have been really good people but they've been bewitched by their own agenda at some point and yeah. when yeah. the agenda of the workload or whatever it is is outweighing that conscious competence. They've almost moved. Everybody wants to be unconsciously competent. I say, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with conscious competence, right? Because, you know, if you drive into ice or fog, it's probably conscious competence that will save you. (laughs) You know, you've got to come out of your moment and go, right, am I doing something on purpose? So I do think those kind of roles, those senior roles, that unconscious competence of getting through the day can be its own problem. I think you have to have mechanisms to check in it's not that i am i moral or what but actually is the experience of me human which means that person's having an experience about my morality and my, my yeah. humanity so yeah. maybe yeah. that's okay um you know but here's a thought if you want, if you, if i can see you're in wind-up mode but let me oh. let me offer let me offer you a, a possibility because <laughs> you know I, I work in a business school and we're talking about essentially business ethics right and um one of the things I would argue is that I'd love to see much greater prominence to business ethics in mm. the teachings of business schools. Um, I, I think that the, the business schools do care about these things. Uh, and you'll often find an awful lot of uh, ethically related podcasts, webcasts, and so on. But the idea that that it, it needs to be fundamentally built into every business degree, I think, is something that I would offer. Uh, as a possibility. But the other thing is that that we've got to, uh, as citizens, understand that the essence of morality, if it is we, not I, then I've got to talk as as readily and as as enthusiastically about my responsibilities as I have about my rights. 
And yet, if you look at or you listen to the discourse about dissatisfaction in the world, it's always about or disproportionately about the way in which my rights have been offended. I have a right to do X. Well, that's true. But the essence of morality is that actions lead to consequences. And so you should choose the consequences as carefully as you choose your actions, because the idea is simply this. You know, you can choose to jump off a high building. You can't choose not to hit the ground. You know, so the, so the idea is think carefully about the consequences of your actions because it is those that you will have to live with. And ideally, we as citizens need to make sure that people do tend, as a general principle, to have to live with the consequences of the decisions they take. So if, so if they take a, a, a dodgy decision in business, you, know, you hope that there will be a whistleblower to inform and a court of law to, to enforce the idea that the people who have to take the consequences of that are the people who took the decisions. Yeah, I, I like that. It's a great note to, to finish on, really. And I like this, you know, rights and responsibilities is very interesting. You have the right to say what you want, but maybe you also have the responsibility to do it with craft and care. So Absolutely. at the most simplistic level, um, rights and responsibilities. Yeah, you have the right, but you also have a responsibility. So the and, it's not versus, it's and. Absolutely so. Absolutely yeah. so. Mm -hmm. Okay, love that. Okay, on that note, I'm going to uh, bring us to a close. And of course, I will see you in the not too distant future for our next episode. <laughs> Thank you very much, David. Good job. That was The Professor and The Coach. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please tell others and subscribe so you don't miss out on further episodes. Hope to see you soon. You can connect with Guy at livingbrave.com and David at pendletonking.com. Thank you.